Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 14, where James writes this. He said, what does it profit? What, what gain is there, my brethren? He's speaking to believers. If someone says he has faith but has no works, and here's the question, can faith save him? And the answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. This is James' argument. Now, he gives a hypothetical illustration in verse 15. He said, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give them the things which they need for the body, what does it profit? And then here's the most famous verse in the book, verse 17. Thus also faith by itself or alone, if it does not have works, is a dead faith. But someone will say, and there's always someone, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, I think I would have liked James. Look at the sarcasm here, verse 19. You believe there's one God? Great, you get a gold star. Even the devils believe, and they tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now, writing to Jewish believers, he's taking them back to the Old Testament. He said, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar? And the answer is yes. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect or complete? And then he gives us the scripture, Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was accounted for him as righteousness. And I love this, he was called the friend of God. If I have one calling in life, that's what it would be. James concludes, you see that a man is justified by works and not faith only. That's a troubling verse. Another illustration, Rahab the harlot, also justified by works when she received the spies or the messengers and sent them out another way. And then finally he ends for say, by saying, for as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. Now, I want to be honest with you guys. This is the hardest chapter in Scripture to preach from. I am being dead serious. Now, it's not that I don't understand the content. I don't understand how to deliver the content. But I know this. we got to nail this. We, we need to understand what James is saying here, as difficult as it is. And here's what he's saying. He's saying there is a faith that's alive, it's vibrant, it's real, it's organic, it comes from the heart, it comes from transformation. The problem is there's something called a dead faith. Here's the problem with dead faith. Dead faith is a faith that outwardly has a sense of religiosity and even an external respectability. The Pharisees gave you that example last week. So you watch an award ceremony, right? The Academy Awards or the Oscars or, or the Grammys and... You know, they get up there and they thank the man upstairs and the big guy. And I gave you that Gallup poll last week, 94% of Americans believe in God. And, 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 you, and you ask yourself, well, where's the evidence? Where's the behavior? See, James is going to argue that behavior follows belief. And the problem with external religion is it can look like the real. It can look like the genuine article. People can fast. They can pray. Uh, they can raise hundreds of millions of dollars for great causes. The problem is, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, you could give all your money to the poor. You know, we have this example of one man who needs food and clothing. He said, you can give all your goods to the poor. But if it's not out of love, it's not out of the proper motivation, um, you're nobody. You're lacking what God really looks for. Uh, Jesus really kind of upped the notch on this one time when he said, 
unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. And the people were thinking, oh my gosh, you're going to put one more burden on us? These are the religious guys, and now we have this, you know, we have to exceed that? Then thankfully he introduces the upside-down kingdom where the poor see the kingdom of God and the meek inherit the earth and prostitutes and tax collectors get it in before the so-called righteous. James is arguing that behavior reveals what we believe. Now, we believe a lot of things. If I walked up and down these aisles and asked you if you believe this or believe that, uh, what do you believe about social issues? You believe a lot, but guess what? We all have what we call core beliefs. See, our core beliefs are very few and we rarely ever violate them. For instance, I have a core belief that gravity is true. Therefore, when I leave the pulpit, I never go too far, okay? This is why I don't hang glide, I, I, I don't kite surf. You know, I know what goes up comes down and I want to stay down, okay? I have another core belief. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And though I fall short, I never violate that because it's a core belief. All my actions, the, the way I spend my money, the way I spend my time, all the decisions I make, again, I fall short, line up with that core belief. James says a dead fat faith lacks the inward reality of transformation. And he talked about the Pharisees. We did this last time, and he said, you know, we have to exceed this. There, there's something grander. And what James is arguing for is not faith or works. He's arguing for a person. His half-brother, Jesus Christ, who he calls the Lord of glory. You know what James is saying? You can know this Lord of glory. You can have an intimate relationship with God. It's not about religiosity. It's not about external works. Jesus said he was the way to God, the truth of God, and the life of God. Jesus said, you can know me. John said, I've written this entire book, this Gospel of John, that you might know this God and have life more abundantly. So it's not faith or works. What we're learning on Sunday mornings, hopefully everybody gets it, is that faith works. A living faith will produce works. Again, it's not simple. But look back at verse 24. It's a very troubling verse. You see that a man is justified by works and not faith only. That flies against everything we believe. It flies against the fact that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. Now, if you struggle with it, know this. I struggle with it. Martin Luther struggled with it. The early church fathers struggled with it. They almost didn't put James in the canon of Scripture. And commentators struggle with it, as they should. Luther, reading the Gospels and looking at what was going on in the Holy Roman Empire, weeped over the, the audacity of indulgences. Now, I've been to Rome. I've been to the church where people were literally on their knees would climb up for plenary indulgences, bloody knees, thinking they're appeasing the Holy God. You turn on TV, you look at people bathing in the Ganges River or making pilgrimages to Mejigori or, or to these different places, and you just weep. And you look at legalism, and some of us were caught up in that. And you look at all these things, and you think, oh my gosh, there's a God who loves us and numbered every hair in our head, and he wants to be intimate with us. And people were caught up in all these things. And of course, Luther struggled with this. And he staked his life on it, and he caused a reformation that has come down to you and me where we understand the beauty of grace. Now, I'm going to get to James's three examples. I'm going to get to Abraham, I'm going to get to Rahab, and I'm going to get to the, the dead man. 
But before I do, I want to give you one more shot at understanding that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, let me put on the screen this creedal verse. If you memorize one verse, remember this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Not of works. Keep repeating that. Lest anyone would boast. So let me take you into a day in the life of Jesus. James would have remembered this. Luke wrote it. He remembered it. Everybody would have remembered it. Jesus, like anyone who's pretty popular, got invited to many homes, right? Just the way it works. Uh, one of the problems is that most of the invitations he accepted were to people of ill repute, sinners and tax collectors. But one day a man named Simon, Luke says he's a prominent Pharisee, invites Jesus to his house. Now, not all the Pharisees were bad. You know, we joke about them and we kid about them. And, but Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple, so was Nicodemus. And so Simon is a man who's resonating with Jesus. He sees the miracles, he hears the teaching, and he wants to check it out for himself. And he does a very noble thing. He said, I'm going to invite Jesus to my house, and I'm going to see if this is really true. Up front and personal. I'll make my own decision. So he invites Jesus. The problem is when you invite Jesus, he comes with an entourage. He has 12 disciples. So you got to prepare a pretty good feast. Now, I don't know if they were all there. Luke doesn't tell us. Even if they weren't all there, they're blue-collar types, right? They're fishermen. One guy's a tax collector. There's two zealots. So right away, Simon doesn't hang around with these types, right? He's more upper-middle class. Next problem with Jesus, there's women in the entourage. And if you don't believe me, look at Luke 8. Luke names them, and he tells us there were many of them. One is Mary Magdalene, who Jesus cast out seven demons. That was great dinner conversation, I'm sure. Herod Steward's wife is there. Anybody who worked for, for Herod had loose morals, right? So you understand the people that Jesus brings with him. Now, they come to this dinner, and verse 37 in Luke says, Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner knew Jesus was there. That's code for she's a prostitute. And when she saw Jesus at Simon's house, she comes in, and most of you know the story, at dinner, she breaks an alabaster box of ointment. This is perfume a prostitute would hang around her neck like a necklace to lure men in. It was very expensive. It was her primary advertising tool. Right at dinner, she breaks this alabaster box, the perfume permeates the room so everybody notices and she gets on her knees and begins to wipe and wash his feet with her tears and her hair and this beautiful perfume now this is scandalous by any reason Simon has spent his entire life staying separate from people like this he washes cups and he has ceremonial baths he does everything to never ever be in the company of a woman like this. And Simon makes up his mind. He said, I had Jesus for dinner, and I got my answer. He's not a prophet, because if he was, he would know that this woman is a sinner. Now, just when everybody's looking for the exits, right, just when the tension is as high as you can get it, Jesus intervenes. He can read your mind, by the way. And he says, Simon, let's start some dinner conversation. Let's start off with this. And he tells them a story. He said, there was a creditor who had two debtors. One man owed 50000 the other owned $5,000. Now, 
And then something miraculous happens. There's a benevolent creditor who's going to forgive both of them their debt. Simon, who will love the creditor more? The one he forgave, $50,000 or $5,000? And Simon said, I would assume the one he forgave, $50,000. Jesus said, you're right. Sunday school is easy. Easy answers, right? Then Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, this woman's sins, which are many, she's of the 50,000 class, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now I gotta tell you, for 20 years of my Christian faith, I hated that verse. Because I got saved on a college campus. I wasn't down and out. I had a prominent life ahead of me. I wasn't a drug addict or a warlock or any of these kind of born-again stories you hear. And I become a Christian, and then I hear all these testimonies of people that were on heroin, and uh, they were in the mob, and I'm thinking, I'm never going to have devotion or love for God like this because I wasn't forgiven as much as they were. Anybody ever feel that way? And then I found out what Jesus was really saying. Now, I might be remedial. It took some time. I get it. Jesus was saying, sin is like money. It's like debt. And what he was saying to Simon is, whether you owe 50000 or you owe 5000 if you can't pay, the creditor's coming. So if I have a $50,000 car and you have a $5,000 car and we both can't make our payments, guess what? They're taking both our cars away. If you got your money from a loan shark, if you owe 50,000, uh, they're gonna break your arm. If you owe five, they're gonna break your thumb, but they're coming. This is the idea, okay? So Jesus kind of gets this across, and then he introduces something that was foreign to them and foreign to us, a benevolent creditor who forgives debt. Anybody banking on Visa or Amex calling you in, December, in January saying, hey, we're gonna forgive all your Christmas debt. Anybody banking on that one? No, we know about debt, right? We know Dave Ramsey's snowball, right? We've all been through that. We get debt. But a benevolent creditor comes in, and the creditor's God, and absolves both these people of their debt. You know what Jesus is telling Simon? That the sins of the respectable, of the garden variety, 5,000, have rendered them just as bankrupt before God's law of the sins of the immoral. Uh, earlier, James said this in chapter 2. He said, whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery and murder, also said, don't commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, a, a perfect game is no walks, no hits. You give up one hit, you lost perfection. And it's the same in God's economy. So it doesn't matter how far or how deep or how wide, the bottom line is one sit condemns us all. Now here was Simon's problem. Simon's problem is a problem common to most of us and certainly to those who don't understand Christianity. See, here's what Simon believed. Simon believed that his sins were respectable. Now he believed he was a sinner and that's why he went to the temple and nobody's gonna say they don't sin. But Simon thought he was a respectable sinner, right? A little white lie here, a little fudging on the taxes here, eat a couple grapes before you get to the checkout line and shop, right? Uh, uh. Take a little tool, you know, from the shop at work to fix something at home. You know, these, these, are, these are respectable sins. 
And certainly they're not like the sins of the immoral, the adulterer, the, the murderer, etc. Catholic Church ruined us all on this, right? They told us about venial and mortal sins, right? Sin is sin. And we don't have an understanding of sin. We don't understand. James said, look, sin starts this way. It starts with desire. Then it blossoms. Then it blooms. And at the end, it brings forth death. There's no such thing as an insignificant sin. This world is a crap hole because of sin, not because of God. You walk the slums of foreign countries, that's man-made. And the greed we have is man-made. And it all starts out small. It all starts out with desire. And there's no such thing as a small sin. The, the second sin in the Bible is murder. The first one's eating of a fruit. And we could argue the eating of the fruit was the worst sin. Look what it produced. Look what Satan produced when he said, I will exalt my throne above God's. You know, he ruined the third of the angels and literally what we see today. And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Simon was playing the game of the gaps, a game we probably all played. And some of you are playing right now. And the game of the gaps is this. Yeah, I'm a sinner, and I have sins, but I'm certainly not as sinful as the person across the aisle, and certainly God grades on a curve, and if the good go to heaven and if the bad go to hell, then surely I'll get in because God is the God of the gaps. And Simon was playing the gaps. And Jesus said to Simon, Simon, you got a problem. You got a blind spot. Here's your blind spot. I came into your home. You didn't even offer me the hospitality of the day. You didn't even offer me what a Roman would offer me, an idol worshiper. They would anoint my face with oil. They would wash my feet. They would give me something to drink. You've done none of this, Simon. But this woman who you look down on, she has not ceased since the time I walked in here to care for me and to devote herself to me. Here's the heart of the parable, and here's where we're going to tie in the James. Jesus said, he was forgiven much, loves much. He was forgiven little, loves little. Jesus said, the heart of the matter of faith is love. We've been saying this all through. I don't care if you read the Bible every day from Genesis to Revelation. If it's not producing love, it's not real faith, guys. It's not a real faith. I don't care if you pray all day, give all your money to the poor, read 1 Corinthians. Paul said, you're a gonging symbol. It just doesn't work. There's no devotion. There's no evidence. The woman's devotion was a sign she had been forgiven. Love was now the motivation. Faith moved her to works. Likewise, Simon, who had never experienced inward transformation, had no ability to love as this woman who he had looked down on. Now Christmas season starts next Friday, I guess. It's my favorite season, and my favorite story is The Christmas Carol. And I watch it over and over again. And I swear Dickens got it right out of the gospel. I love that scene, it's Christmas morning. Scrooge can't believe it. He opens his door, and he's gonna buy the biggest turkey for Bob Cratchit. Why, because he's gonna earn favor? No, because he realizes what he's done and he's been transformed. The story's so brilliant because faith moves us to action. Now, let's go to James' example. He begins with Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar? 
Do you not see that faith was working, verse 22, together with his works? And the scripture said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted in righteousness. Now, those are backwards. When you go home, do a double check. So the latter happened before the former, as James writes it. In Genesis 15, Abraham is talking to God and he understands this great, great vision that he's going to be the father of many nations and God is going to reach the world through the Jews. But Abraham's arguing with God. He says, God, I have no heir. How are you even going to start this thing? You know, Sarah and I are, you know, up in years, way past childbearing. How's this all going to happen? God says to Abraham, come outside. He says, look at the stars. If you can count them, and he can. He said, if you can count them, these will be your offspring, Abraham. And then it says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him righteousness. He hadn't done anything. God tells him, cut animals in half. They're going to cut a covenant. They're going to make a contract. He cuts the animals in half. God does something unbelievable. He puts Abraham to sleep. And God walks through the animals and he announces the covenant. And what that means is it's unconditional. God, God will be the one who is responsible for these things happening. Well, that's where faith started with Abraham. Now we get to Genesis 22, many years later. He's had a son of his body, Isaac, called laughter because who in the world could have a baby at 90 or 100 years old? But now he's got this heir. God is right. The stars in heaven, I have the first one. Problem is, God said, take your son, the only son that you love, and take him on the hill where I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham obeyed. He didn't understand, but he obeyed. You see, his faith in God was so deep. His core beliefs forced him to act, even though what God was asking him was against his natural mind, because the Canaanites... And the people against God are the ones that would get involved with child sacrifice. Somehow Abraham was willing to walk that hill. Hebrews says that he believed God would have to raise Isaac from the dead. And I don't think Abraham could have put it in words, but you know what he knew? He knew looking ahead what we know looking back that one day God would walk his own son up a hill. And Isaac, when he said, Father, here's the wood, here's the altar, where's the lamb? Jesus would answer the same question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This time, instead of God withholding judgment, he pours out the wrath of the world on his son at Moriah so that you and I could receive adoption and justification. Abraham somehow saw all this and it was faith. So he believed God, it was faith. His faith led him, his core beliefs led him to take the only son that he loved because one day God would take his only son, the son that he loves. Because God so loved the world, he would send him to a cross. So that's Abraham. Now the next one is Rahab. This is phenomenal. Rahab the prostitute. She's named four times in scripture. She always has that tagline. Man, I hope when we get to heaven, there's no taglines, <laughs> right? Rahab, hey, this is Rahab the prostitute, right? <laughs> hey, guys, that was a long time ago. Those were BC days, you know? <laughs> you all know the story of Rahab. It's a very interesting story. There were two types of prostitutes in the ancient world. There were temple prostitutes. That was like an upstanding job. And there was run-of-the-mill prostitutes. She was run-of-the-mill. And Moses sends two spies into the land, and uh, these spies are being 
you know, tracked down by the authorities. And everybody would have known Rahab's house. She was an innkeeper uh, and probably near the city gates. And the two spies run there and she hides them. She has a thatch roof. And she hides them when the authorities come. She said, oh, they fled the city and they run out and they lock the gates. And the spies are spared. And James here is talking about how she's a woman of faith, which is hard to believe. Joshua 2.11, this is what she said. I know the Lord has given you this land. <laughs> she knew something the people of Israel were, couldn't figure out because when Joshua and Caleb go back, they're going to tell the people this is the land that God has given us and nobody believes them, but she believes. I know God gave you this land. We heard the Exodus story and we're fearful of this God. And as soon as we heard of these things, our hearts melted. Isn't that what salvation is? Your heart melts. Neither did there remain any more courage in us because of you. For the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R-D, Yahweh, Jehovah, for the Lord your God, he is God above and the earth below. Guys, that's all it takes. Romans says, with the mouth we make confession, with the heart we believe that Jesus is Lord. This was saving faith. Rahab came to saving faith with that confession. But it led her to action. Her behavior lined up with what she believed. One commentator said first she heard the word, then she believed the word. Belief led her to faith in God's word. Faith in God's word led her to act on God's word. It was a core belief. Later in Joshua 6, she's spared. She leaves Jericho and never turns back. We find her next in Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the harlot. This is how we know the Bible comes from God. If man had written the Bible, they would never give us two shining examples, one the founder of what we believe and the other a harlot. Would never happen. And yet right smack in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is a harlot. The only woman in Hebrews 11 outside of Sarah, Rahab the harlot. Why the tagline? Because Jesus gave us the inverse kingdom with the last going first and those who were in the highways and byways and God's not a respecter of any person. So if God wants Abraham to sit next to Rahab, James says you don't put a rich man in the front and a poor man in the back. It doesn't work that way because we all had a debt we couldn't pay. From the greatest to the least of us. And guys, I want to tell you, these hundred verses of James were revolutionary when they were being circulated. It's ho-hum to you. It's second nature. Why? Because we hold these truths to be self-evident, that every man is made in the image of God and we're equal to our creator. It wasn't self-evident 2,000 years ago. It was the farthest thing from anybody's mind in the Roman Empire. But you are the recipients of something that came because a revolution began on Easter weekend when Jesus went to the cross and when he rose from the dead. He, he began a revolution as a peasant rabbi against the iron boot of Rome and became the most famous person in all of history and in the Roman Empire. And the weak became strong. And the poor were cared for. And the sick were cared for. And the gospel went forth. And this was a revolution that was underway. But it looks so trivial to us. 
because it's been inbred in our institutions for hundreds and hundreds of years. And James says, this is what the revolution looks like. There's a community of people that are all going to sit together and are all going to love one another and are all going to share their things in common. It doesn't matter what they do. and It doesn't matter what Rome says they are. And it doesn't matter what strata of society they come from. We're going to love one another and we're going to be called brothers and sisters. And no one's going to tell anybody to be warm and filled because in this community, everyone loves the way that woman loved Jesus when she broke the alabaster box of perfume. This is real faith, guys. James is saying, this is real faith. This is what church looks like. This isn't dead faith. This is real faith. This is faith that saves, and this is faith that goes on, and it affects every part of who we are. It affects my wallet. It affects my time. It affects the decisions I make, the actions I take, who I marry, what I do. And it's all based out of love. And at the end of the day, we could look at each other and say, the only thing I'm desiring is to be a friend of God. Because if God's my friend, think of this logic. What can happen to me? Pearl or sword or nakedness? This is why Paul could go on and preach the gospel despite all the things that would come against him because God was his friend. And he knew God in a real way. When I preached through Hebrews 11 this summer, uh, every week we showed you a grander vision video. These are little vignettes, very short, three or four minutes, of people just like you and me, people sitting in the pews, who were ambushed by this loving God. And then God whispered something in their ear, and they went on to do something for God. It doesn't make them better than you or me. It just is amazing to watch. It's inspirational. They're never going to get to heaven because they've done these things. See, the, the worst thing you could do today is read James and say, oh my gosh, if someone asks me for something and I say be warm and filled, I'm not a Christian, let me go out and serve the poor. No, because that would be the wrong motivation. You serve the poor because the God who loves the poor has infiltrated your life. So I love these Grander Vision videos because they inspire us and they show us that our faith leads us to works, and they show us that faith works.